It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. I am excited to announce that we will be beginning a new teaching series uh, this morning in the book of James called Born Again Behavior. And let me just say before we really get into this thing, when a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, right? You can read about that in John chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 8, and multiple other places in the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit that rebirths us, who comes in and regenerates and makes us a new person. When a person is born again by the Spirit, they literally become a new creation, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 5, and they begin to exhibit born-again behavior. And maybe we'll just say that born-again behavior is a, a fancy phrase to describe Christian living, Christian conduct, the life of a Christian. We could say that. And I, I would describe born-again behavior uh, in, in many ways, but I would say that it has to do with having a new love for God, a love for God that wasn't there before, um, a hunger for God's Word that wasn't there before, a desire to obey Him and please Him. That wasn't there before you are born again. A thirst for righteousness. You know, just a, just a, a genuine internal desire to do what is right and pleasing for God. And, and I would also say that born-again behavior is represented by a, a ton of, of new convictions that the person now has that, that impact the way that we think, that impact the way that we speak, that impact um, our conduct, the way we conduct ourselves and live our lives. And the book of James is is an excellent resource because it really, truly describes born-again behavior in a simple, straightforward, convicting way. It's very much like uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In fact, James borrowed most of his teachings here uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. It's been said that, that he um, borrowed from Je- straight from Jesus' teachings more than any other New Testament author. And so his book does something for us that's just phenomenal. It really kind of breaks down this born-again behavior, what it is to be a Christian, how to conduct and live our lives in such a... And maybe that's what we like about James so much, is just how practical it is. It's just so straightforward. There's no symbolism. It's not not mysterious. Um, Everything is just bam, bam, bam right in your face. And some say it's not a book at all. Some say it it doesn't even have the structure of an actual letter, that it probably is a sermon. Because if you read it out loud, it sounds like a preacher preaching a sermon to a congregation. It really does. So we're going to use this this impactful little book to test and examine ourselves to make sure that our lives are characterized by born-again behavior to make sure that we have been, in fact, born again, to make sure uh, that, that we are living out what that means. And sometimes that's an issue for us. It's not that we haven't been born again. It's that there's a bit of ignorance there. I remember when I first got saved, when I was first born again, I, I didn't really know how to live as a Christian. I had new convictions and all these things, and I was learning as I was getting into the Word. But we need the instruction of the Word of God to uh, show us and tell us how we are to live. And if you're a veteran saint, you need to be reminded of these things, do you not? But before we go any further, I'd like to read the opening line, because that's as far as we're going today. And, and uh, maybe you're excited about that. It doesn't mean we're going to treat every line like that, although we probably could. But we're going to go, we're just going to take care of verse 1 of chapter 1 today. Because I I need to give you a context and and a background of the author and book and all of that. And that's what we'll do today. But go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. We will be focusing on verse 1. I'll read it. And the reason why I want to draw from verse 1 to build a background for this book is because verse 1 actually does that. It describes the author and all sorts of things. So I'll just read it. It says, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he just says, greetings. Just stop right there. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for our time together so far. We have been able to connect with you and worship you through song and through giving and through the reading of Scripture. And what a wonderful theme we have this month of Thanksgiving. As Brandon said, quoting the Scripture, we are to live thankful lives. And as Christians, those who have been born again by the Spirit, those who have been redeemed and saved by your sovereign grace, we should be the most thankful people on the face of the earth. And yet, when I think of myself, that's just not me most days. I'm just too pessimistic. And Father, so I just, I just pray that you help us with that theme, to be thankful people as we reflect upon on that theme and on your goodness and what you've achieved for us. And now we have this great task of, of studying your word together. And I pray that you open our minds, you open our eyes, you open our ears, you open our hearts to the word. You prepare us and you give us a, a humility right now so that we can receive it properly. So be glorified during this time. Thank you for this series, and and we just commit it to you and pray that you would guide us and lead us through the entire thing, that we would hear from you, not Phil, that we would hear from you, no other voice. So speak to us now through your word, and we thank you in advance for what you'll do, and we pray in Jesus' matchless name, amen. So we got to begin by discussing the author and date of this sermon. Author and date, number one, obviously, the letter begins with the author's name, right? James was written by a man named James. How profound, how deep. It is self-titled. But, but, I will say this, as I was studying this week, I discovered that there is a lot of debate over which James this is. Lots and lots of debate on this by various scholars. and The New Testament knows of at least four men named James. Let's talk about him for a moment. First, you've got James, the son of Zebedee. He was the brother of the apostle John, and he himself was an apostle. Right? Mark 1.19, Matthew 10.2. And he was later martyred by King Herod Agrippa, in 44 AD, Acts 12.2. And he was actually martyred and killed before the writing of this letter. So that excludes him. Wasn't James a brother of the Apostle John who, who wrote some scripture, who, who wrote Revelation and, the, and his epistles and, and the Gospel of John? It wasn't that James. He died before this thing was written. He was martyred. He was killed. He was beheaded. So we got to exclude him, but that's one of the Jameses. Secondly, we have James, son of Alphaeus. Uh, he was also an apostle of Jesus, Matthew 10, 3. He was given the nickname James the Younger or James the Less, uh, Mark 15, 40. John Calvin, Thomas Manton, and, and a plethora of other scholarly people and, and, and saints of old, they all think that James, son of Alphaeus, was indeed the author of, of this sermon letter. Erasmus and, and Martin Luther thought it was an unknown James. Uh, so uh, Luther was a contemporary to Calvin, and Calvin thought it was James, son of Alphaeus, but Luther thought this is a James that is not identified in the Bible anywhere except for here in this letter. I don't know how he arrived at that. but um, It's not likely that James, son of Alphaeus, was the author, and, and one of the main reasons would be because of his obscurity. He wasn't a, a well-known apostle during the ministry of Jesus or shortly thereafter. We just don't know much about him. He's, he's not really mentioned anywhere else except in, in, in the choosing of the apostles or disciples by Jesus. And, and the opening line of this letter, this sermon, this epistle, it implies that the author was actually well-known a well-known, prominent figure in the church, right? If he just writes James, that means that people have to know who he is. This is a, a particular James. It means that if you could just start your letter with your name, you're, you're assuming that the people that you're writing to know exactly which James this is. So, so James here is a familiar James, and quite frankly, James, son of Alphaeus, just doesn't fit that profile. He was too obscure, not, not known well enough. And then you have James, the father of Judas, uh, Luke 6, 16. This is not Judas Iscariot. This is 
Judas the other apostle, John 14, 22, um, a.k.a. Thaddeus or Thaddeus, Matthew 10, 3, that would be his other name. There's no way that it could have been this James. He's just the dad of one of the apostles. He's not known at all. He's known less than James, son of Alphaeus. So we know that it wasn't some guy's dad that wrote it. Although I guess it could have been somebody's dad, but it wasn't this guy. He's just, he's just somebody's dad who's mentioned. And then fourthly, you have James, the half-brother of Jesus. Galatians 1.19. Now all the women in here who have been studying this, that's the guy, you know. <laughs> well, hold your horses, okay? I'm about ready to destroy you. No, I'm not. I'm and I would just say, notice how I introduced him, James, the half-brother of Jesus, okay? So, so he was a blood relative of Jesus in a sense, and contrary to the claims of Roman Catholics, Mary and Joseph actually had additional children after the Lord Jesus was born. Jesus had siblings. According to Mark 6.3, Jesus had several half-brothers and sisters, Okay? I don't know how they arrive at this. Maybe they're just trying to show that Mary just was never with Joseph ever or any of that. Uh, but they actually had kids together after this. Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. Uh, his half-brothers were called James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Those are their names. They had a huge family, big family, Mormon-esque, but not Mormon. <laughs> big family. And yet, none of these brothers actually believed in Jesus during his ministry. None of them believed that, that he was the Messiah. None of them believed that he was the Christ. And that's kind of bizarre, right? Because you live with Jesus and, and you notice something different about him. You know, you've got all these brothers and they're always beating each other up and Jesus is always back there chilling. They're pounding each other, stealing each other's toys doing whatever they did, and Jesus never participated in it. I mean, obviously, they, they realized something different about him, and yet, even when he preached the gospel, they didn't embrace him as Messiah. I think there was a kind of a, a Joseph and his 11-brother dynamic there with Jesus and his brothers. You know, right? The Joseph and his brothers and his brothers pretty much, you know, Joseph was a great guy, kind of foreshadows the Lord and the way he lived his life, and he was a good dude, man. He was a godly man. He was a bit of a braggadarius, though Jesus was not that. But his brothers despised him because he was unique. And, and I think that that same dynamic plays out with Jesus and his brothers, although that's conjecture because the Scripture doesn't say. But the Scripture does tell us, though, however, that his brothers were a bit antagonistic toward him. It tells us that they didn't believe, but it tells us that when he was about to go celebrate the Feast of Booths, they wanted him to go like, right now, come on, Jesus, you need to go. Why? Because if you're going to be a public figure, you need to go do public acts and things like this. They were essentially kind of teasing him. Go, go, go to Jerusalem and, and prove that you are, in fact, divine, as you say. And so they were a bit antagonistic toward him. They didn't believe him. At one point, his entire family thought he was literally insane. And they tried to seize him and take him back to Nazareth. Mark 3, uh, verse 21. So his, his brothers were unbelieving during his ministry, including James, the half-brother there. He just did not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior until shortly after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. I think what happened was clearly... Jesus rises, he's got about 40 days there, and in that period he reveals himself to his brother James, and that is James's Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus moment, where James, the scales are removed, and he can see his half-brother as he truly is, the divine son of God. That's when he got saved. Now, we don't know what happened with Joseph and Judah, the other brothers, we know that the half-brother of Jesus, James, his name, James, he, he, he was saved. After Pentecost, the apostles 
were kind of like the primary pastors in the church in, in Jerusalem, and they just ministered and preached, and you, know, you can read about in Acts 2, 42 to 47, all the church was committed to their teaching and preaching, and, and they were just disciple-making and doing all this wonderful stuff for several, several years until this half-brother, James, here, eventually took over the pastorate at the Jerusalem church. He, he became, it says in Scripture in Galatians 2, 9, he became a pillar of the church at Jerusalem. He became the, the leading member of, of what we call the Jerusalem Council who, who wrote a letter settling the matter of justification by faith. Acts 15, 23 to 29. He became an apostle. And one of the requirements to be an apostle is that you had to see the risen Lord Jesus. And he, in fact, did after the resurrection. Galatians 1, 19. This particular James, the half-brother of Jesus, he was given two nicknames. First, he was called James the Just. Why? Why would they call him James the Just? Because of his unwavering commitment to personal holiness and, and to righteousness and to living out God's law to the glory of God. This man was pious and committed. He really was, in many ways, a model Christian. So he was called James the Just because of that. Secondly, he was called the man with camel's knees. Well, that's a bizarre thing to be called. Hey, man with camel's knees. Oh, that's me. I mean, that's just weird. But it's not really because what happened was he was a man who was so committed to prayer that as he prayed and prayed and prayed, his knees developed serious calluses, probably painful calluses. And so his knees, and all of you are probably going to go home and Google search camel knees, and you'll see how tore up looking they are. And that is why he was given that nickname. He had these great calluses on his knees because he was such a committed man of prayer. He was, uh, I hate the cliche saying, but he was just a prayer warrior. I hate that. Oh, she's a prayer warrior. What is that? He was one. The ancient Christian historian uh, Eusebius recorded that James was stoned to death. He was martyred by scribes and Pharisees in 63 A.D. This guy was put to death. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus also recorded his martyrdom in Antiquities, book 20, chapter 9. Actually, I had to look that up. That was not easy to find. Now, there is identical grammar in the letter in Acts 15, 23 through 29, and the book of James. The, the letter that I'm referring to is the letter that the Jerusalem Council, James wrote that letter and sent that letter to the Gentiles that were living in another territory, instructing them on how to live their lives, but primarily showing that they are justified by the same faith that the apostles were justified by. So James actually, they have this council, and, and the council rules. This is like the first ecumenical council meeting in the church. And, and, the, and the church rules that, look, we're not justified by what we do through circumcision or any of the errors that people are spreading up there where you guys live. We are justified by faith alone. That's the letter. And James wrote that letter. And there are similarities between that letter and the book of James, which I think authenticates the authorship. For example, both pieces of literature open with a salutation, uh, Cairo or Charo, which is greetings. And you say, well, well, anyone can open a letter with the salutation greetings. Well, no one else in the New Testament did. So that should tell you something. Only the letter in the book of Acts opens with that greeting, Chiro, and only the book of James opens with Chiro. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Seems like a minor point, but there's no other literature in the New Testament that begins with that salutation. Also, the word Adelphos, brothers, appears two times in the letter in Acts 15, which is only seven verses, by the way. It was like, you know, it was like Bruce wrote it. Hey, brother, hey, brother, hey, brother. You know, you know how he is. There's only seven verses there, and, and, and the word for brother, Adelphos, appears two times, and, yet, and, then it, and then it appears 15 times in James, which is only 108 verses. I think there's a connection there, the use of Adelphos. That seems to be the author's favorite title for believers, other believers. So the use of, of identical grammar in both pieces of biblical literature combined with his high influential 
position within the church has led the majority of historians and theologians to conclude that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is indeed the author of James. And they also conclude that he wrote the letter between 45 and 50 A.D., and some say between 45 and 47. It was somewhere between 45 and 50. And this would make, if it was indeed authored then, this would make James the earliest of the New Testament books to be written, which is very interesting. Some people say Mark, but Mark was written in later, much later. Now, critics of this view, because there are many critics who just reject James, the half-brother of Jesus. Critics of this view say that if James, the half-brother of Jesus, had actually written this letter, he would have listed his credentials in the opening line, Right? He would have wrote something like, James, the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church, chairman of the Jerusalem council, apostle, and servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Greetings. He would have listed all of those, all of those credentials, his, uh, his pedigree, if you want to call it that. And, and this argument seems a bit logical at first. I, I think it seems logical in that you, you would think that he would at least identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus. And yet, the argument falls apart pretty quickly when you consider the following realities. I'm going to give you three reasons why James intentionally left this information, his credentials out at the beginning of this letter. First, he knew his audience, and his audience knew him, so there was no reason for him to list his credentials. James isn't writing to people that he doesn't know. He knows them and they know him. You just think about it. If I were to write Cameron a letter, I would not begin by saying, Phil, adopted son of God, pastor of Redemption Hill Church, elder at Redemption Hill Church, ordained minister of the gospel, former youth pastor at Big Valley Grace, student who enrolled in a Bible program at Liberty but never finished, DCW grad, Former certified Christian counselor got out of that quick. I wouldn't list. I mean, it's camera would be like, what is he doing? It's Phil. Why would I not list these things if I wrote Cameron a letter? First of all, why would I write Cameron a letter? I'll just text him. But if I did indeed write him a letter, why would I list these? Th- why, why would I not list these things? Because Cameron knows me. All I have to put is Phil, and then his, his heart already sinks. He's automatically thinking, I'm in trouble. What have I done? right? And then I would write, I just wanted to tell you I love you. And he would say, that's great, I'll write him back. And now we're going off on a tangent here. Cameron knows me. There's no reason for me to list those things. There was no reason for James to list anything more than he listed. And, and, and yet there's something profound here about what he did list. What James listed here is high enough. It's high enough. A super high credential is represented here, and he knew it. The Greek word for servant is doulos, which can be translated into English as bondservant or slave. The Greek word for Lord is kyrios, not curious, kyrios, K-Y-R-I-O-S. The Hebrew equivalent is Yahweh to kyrios, right, to Lord, which is an actual name for God. James is essentially telling his audience that he is a slave unto God the Father, a slave unto God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling his audience. I am a a doulos of the kurios, a slave of the Father, a slave of God the Son. That's what he's saying. And I'd like to just propose to you that, in, in my opinion, this is the highest position a human being can achieve. This is the top. To to be a slave of God, to be a slave of the triune God, it, it puts us on par with the angels and even above the angels. 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Being a slave unto God is is higher than than being the half-brother of Jesus. Being a slave unto God in the the kingdom of God is higher than than being an earthly king of an earthly kingdom. You know, we live in this culture that just presses us to become something. If you're a Christian, you're at the top. 
You're a slave of the Most High God, and He is a benevolent King filled with grace and mercy. When James writes that he is a servant or slave unto God and unto the Lord Jesus Christ, he is actually listing his highest pedigree and credentials. You didn't need to put anything else. And third, James deliberately left those things out of his self-description because he was a humble man. A humble man. How do I know he was humble? Well, he was a holy and righteous person. Holy and righteous people are humble. According to God's Word, you, you can't be holy, righteous, and prideful at the same time. The pride rules out anything else. Pride is a, a devastating, damnable sin. Some say it's one of the seven deadlies. Augustine once, once said it was pride that changed angels into devils. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he became prideful? Right? When he walked out on his veranda and said, look at what I have built with my own hands. God caused him to lose his mind and he goes off into the pasture and begins to graze like a wild ox. He went from praising himself to moo. Daniel 4.33, God does not allow prideful men to hold the offices James held. Peter was a prideful man at first, but after his terrible denial of Jesus, his fall and restoration, he became a humble man and then fit for the office of apostle. Remember, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? That's chapter 4, verse 6 of this, of this letter. If you see a, a prideful man in a pastoral office in a legitimate church, he probably didn't begin that way and became prideful over time. And we need to know for certain that if he refuses to repent, he won't be in that position for long. Because pride always goes before the fall, Proverbs 16, 18. And I would just submit to you the fact that James left out certain details about who he is proves that he was indeed humble. And when we take all of that together, I think we discover clearly that he was the author. That he was the author. Now let's talk about the recipients of this letter. We just simply call them the audience. James describes his audience right there in verse 1 as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, 12 tribes generally refers to the Old Testament tribes of Israel, which were named after Jacob's sons. We read about them in Genesis 49. The Greek word for dispersion is diaspora. Diaspora refers to Jews who were dispersed or scattered abroad by foreign invaders like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Diaspora Jews or dispersion Jews are Jews who lived outside of Israel, foreign territories, Samaria and beyond. James' use of the title, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, tells us that he was writing to Messianic Jews or Jewish Christians who had left his church in Jerusalem and were now scattered abroad. So that's who he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish Christians who, who once belonged to his church and yet were dispersed and sent out and scattered among pagan nations, and in Judea and other places nearby. Why were these Jewish Christians dispersed and scattered? Why, why did they actually leave James' church? Well, we find the answer in several chapters in the book of Acts, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 11. And all kind of began with a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a good man. He was full of faith and 
full of the Holy Spirit. He was appointed to serve as one of the first deacons in the church, Acts 6, verse 5. At some point, he was dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, for preaching the gospel and for performing great signs and wonders, Acts chapter 6, 8 through 15. And what did Stephen do as he's doing his ministry and now he's drugged in front of the Supreme Court? What does he do? Shrink in fear? No, he sees that as an opportunity to preach Christ and to call his fellow Jews to repentance. And so what does he do? He seizes the moment and he goes for it. Acts 7, 2 through 53. It's one of the longest and greatest sermons in all of Scripture, by the way. It's just amazing. I read it and go, I cannot preach. And how did the Sanhedrin respond to his just incredible sermon? Oh, they repented in sackcloth and ashes and became members of the Jerusalem church. Not. They cast him out of the city and had him stoned to death. They killed him. Acts 7, 54 to 60. And in Acts Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, From that day forward, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And Acts eleven fifteen 15 tells us that, that many of the Jewish Christians who fled Jerusalem at that time also went into Phoenicia and, and Cyprus and Antioch. Who gave approval for the execution of Stephen, a young, zealous Pharisee named Saul, Acts 7.58, who spearheaded the devastating persecution that broke up James's church and sent his congregates fleeing for their lives? Who caused this dispersion that James lists here, that he identifies here? The same man, Saul. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. While Saul, while on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus, he had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, didn't he? Shaking your head because you remember the story, don't you? His eyes were blinded by the divine light of Christ's glory, and his, his heart of stone was, was pulverized by divine grace and, and replaced with a heart of flesh. Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19, instead of arresting Christians, once he got to Damascus, instead of arresting Christians in Damascus, he, he began to visit the synagogues and, and, and preach the gospel. Acts 9, 20 through 22. After several days, he had to leave Damascus because he infuriated the Jews in those synagogues with his presentation of Christ. He had to be lowered out a window in a basket. That might have been kind of fun. Probably not. And from there, he goes into Arabia to preach the gospel, and then he eventually returns to Damascus. And after three years, he goes up to Jerusalem, and, and he tries to enter the church, right? Nobody really knows who he is or what he's been doing. They just know he's a persecutor. Maybe he fell off the radar for several years. But then he, all of a sudden, he shows up in Jerusalem, and, 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 and he tries to get into the church. He tries to have fellowship with, with the apostles and the remaining Christians who were there. And Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, just wouldn't let him in because they were terrified of him. They remembered who he is and what he had done. It wasn't until a trusted leader named Barnabas ended up vouching for Saul. I mean, he listened to Saul's story and listened to how Saul was converted on the Damascus Road and all these things. And, and he goes in and he begins to kind of plead with, with Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus. And they finally relented and let him in. Galatians 1, 17 to 19. Acts 9, 26 to 28. Later, Saul went on multiple missions trips to plant churches, changed his name to Paul, became an apostle, and authored about half of the New Testament. 
The 12 tribes in the dispersion James wrote to were Jewish Christians who belonged to his church until they were driven away and scattered by Saul and his henchmen. Can you imagine what must have been going through the, the mind of James the day that Saul appears and knocks on the door of the church? Can I come in and fellowship with you? What do you think was going through his mind? Don't open the door. That guy destroyed my church. That guy messed up our church. He split up our church with the persecution. Don't let him in. He must have been thinking a lot of stuff like that. Maybe he wasn't. I would have been like, just keep the door barred. Put an armoire against it. And yet, they accepted him. They accepted the testimony of, of Barnabas. And then Saul comes in, and, and he is a genuine, born-again believer, bearing the, the born-again behavior and all of that. And he's a preacher, and he goes into the synagogues and starts preaching, and then he blows out all the Jews in Jerusalem. Then he has to get sent away to Tarsus. Everywhere the guy went, people got ticked. Well, it was because his preaching style was really rigid and hard. No, it's because he preached Christ crucified. That's what angers people. Don't you dare tell me that he died for my sin because I'm not a sinner. I do good things. Don't you dare tell me he's the only way, truth, and life because there are many paths. My path is going there too. No, yours is I-5. So who is he writing to? He's writing to, or, or, or is everyone that he's writing to, are all of them from his church? I doubt it, but I think a great many were, and he knew them, and I think he knew them by name. These were, these were his, his beloved congregants. Imagine if somebody came in here and, and, just, and, the, and the government came in and, and, and devastated our little church, and we all split out out there. I'd probably write you a letter because I love you and because I miss you. Hopefully you'd write back. Daryl's always text you. You just think about that for a moment. Think of that context. These people are really without a home. Far. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Now let's talk about the main theme and and the purpose of James. And I'll just begin by saying it's very, very difficult to nail down a main theme and primary purpose in this letter because of the way that it's written. It's difficult to nail it down. I mean, you can read some biblical literature and you, you know exactly what, you know, the purpose and theme is. And we know in a general sense the purpose is always Christ. But you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's tough to discern what it is that James is after here. What is your primary point, James? I'm sure some people have just kind of yelled that while they're reading this. Luther accused the author, the, the other James, the James that we're not familiar with. That's what he said, right? Luther accused the author of throwing things together chaotically. <laughs> That's literally what he said. It's just thrown together. It's a mess. It's a literary mess. And because it doesn't present certain doctrines associated with Christ's work, Luther called it the epistle of straw. Now, I like Luther a lot, but that's, that's, that's dangerous to refer to anything in God's word as an epistle of straw. And I think to be fair to James... When Jesus preached his famous Sermon on the Mount and meticulously laid out what born-again behavior is like, what the lives of Christians should be like. In fact, I think he laid God's law out in such a degree we all realize very quickly as we study it and read it that we all fail and can't meet the obligations. We can't meet the expectations. So our only hope is to trust in the one who did, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, there is a, there's a model, a, a, a template there for how we are to live our lives. We see that in Exodus as well with God's law. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice also that Jesus didn't mention those doctrines associated with his redemptive work either, with the exception of maybe his fulfillment of the law, which is important. Okay, so, so what I'm telling you is that 
Luther had a low view of James because it doesn't present things like the atonement and those things, but he has a high view of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the papists that, that attacked that letter, he called them hogs and donkeys, but he used the A word. So he had a very high view of the Sermon on the Mount, which doesn't actually present the finished work of Jesus, but he had a low view of James that doesn't do it either. So that's kind of bizarre, right? I wonder what was going on with him. But the absence of, of these doctrines in James does not indicate a problem. If this were true, then vast swaths of the Bible would be problematic because they do not present them either. They just don't. There are sections of Scripture that deal primarily with lifestyle or, or how the people of God are to conduct their lives. Exodus 20, right? The Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount. And James, they're great examples of this, this kind of literature. So just because something doesn't, isn't like the Apostle Paul and blow by blow on what Jesus accomplished for us, that doesn't render it worthless. James didn't lay out certain doctrines in his epistle because others in the church were already doing this, including the Apostle Paul, who had already been preaching and teaching for about 10 years at this point. Plus, the issues James's audience were facing were not necessarily doctrinal, but doxological. And you're thinking, what is that? By doxological, I mean these people were not living out the great doctrines of the faith in a way that was worshipful and pleasing to God. They had lifestyle problems that needed correction because they did not align with the word and will of God. And I believe this is the main theme and purpose of the letter. James wrote to address and test these scattered Jewish Christians because many were not exhibiting consistent born-again behavior. James lists at least seven indictments against them in chapter 1. I just go over them very quickly. Number one, they were responding to trials improperly. That's verses 2 through 4. They were leaning on human wisdom rather than seeking God for wisdom, verses 5 through 8. They had, a, they had corrupted views regarding poverty and wealth, verses 9 through 11. They blamed God for their troubles and tribulations or their troubles and temptations in verses 13 through 18. How many of us have done that when calamity comes? We're just like, what's going on, God? Why are you doing this to me? We blame Him. They did that. And boy, were they suffering. They were angry and an and, and angry group of people for some reason, angry and quick to voice that anger and to act it out. That's verses 19 through 21. They were hearers of the word, but not doers of the word, verses 22 through 25. They were religious, but foul-mouthed, verses 26 through 27. In chapters 2 through 5, the remaining portion of the letter, James basically expands on each of these subjects and consistently calls for his readers, his hearers to repent. And he even alludes to or points to eschatology, the day of the Lord is coming. What caused these scattered Jewish Christians to go down these paths of, of unrighteousness to exhibit this worldly behavior? Well, it's precisely that. I believe they let outside influences and worldliness creep into their lives. They became somewhat enculturated. In chapter 4, verse 4, James calls them adulterous people and then reminds them of a simple truth. Friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Now, some theologians claim they had somehow misunderstood Paul's teachings on justification by faith and developed an early kind of antinomianism, lawlessness. Well, this, that sounds very intriguing and interesting. That could be true in a sense, but we have no way to determine what Paul's level of understanding was at that time. Galatians presents a fully developed doctrine of justification by faith, but it was written after James. 
So we, we don't know for sure if these Jewish Christians are just misunderstanding what Paul taught on justification by faith, and they're using that as a license for sin. We don't know if that's true. That's conjecture. Sounds interesting. We don't know what led them to become worldly. I, I just think it's just the influence of the world around them and their circumstances. I just want you to try to maybe put yourself in their place and in their shoes for a moment. Imagine being persecuted and driven from your home, driven from your family. You might have even been driven out by your family then. You're persecuted to the level of being driven away from your home, your family, driven out and away from your church, the church that you love, that you do life with, those believers. Driven out and away from your community. Driven out of your hometown. Driven into a, an unfamiliar foreign place, riddled with pagan shrines and, and false gods. You're just surrounded by all of it. And when your neighbors, your co-workers, the local synagogues realize that you are a Christian, and when you're in that foreign place, then the persecution and suffering, it just starts up again, and the cycle repeats. You don't get a break. Do you think? Under those circumstances, it would be difficult to live out born-again behavior. We live in a paradise compared to where they lived. We have no concept as to what they were experiencing. Very little. Some in here do, who were Jehovah Witness at one time and thrown from their families because they repented of that. They know what it is like a little bit. But this is still at another level. Now we read about people like this and we say, ha, 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 look at them, what are they doing? How foolish. We live in a paradise and yet we fail, right? We're not under the same pressure and demands they are. We're not in their context. And yet we, in an easier paradise-like context, fail to consistently model born-again behavior at times, don't we? Yeah. And if you say, well, I really don't, believe me, you'll discover that you do as we study James. No one, no one but the Lord Jesus Christ can read that book and get away with it. It will destroy us because it is so poignant and penetrating and real. There's just no way. I considered these people that James wrote to. I, you know, I get to get emotional and I can be a little bit of a weepy guy, but man, I just, I just felt so burdened. Just how tough this must have been for them. But the truth is, God's standards for His people are high. They are. It's a mistake to think that because Jesus came to fulfill the law that we're not supposed to still live it out. We're actually born again and saved from the penalty of the law so we can obey the law. That's truth. We are to obey God's law. That's their standard for life. God's standards for His people is, is high, and He expects us to be holy. Why? Because He is holy. 1 Peter 1, 16. Do you think that when Jesus died on the cross, He removed the fact that we have to be holy? No, He died on the cross to pay for our unholiness, and then He regenerates us so that we can live a holy life. God, His standards are high for His people. He expects us to be holy because He is holy. He expects us to, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Notice how it says fully pleasing to Him, not partially. Fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10 
Jesus hasn't relaxed that for us. And here's the deal. Here's what we forget. God's standards for His people, for us, do not change when our circumstances become difficult. The standard never changes. Never. No allowance for sinful behavior among the people of God is given in Scripture ever. God expects us to to maintain born-again behavior at all times, regardless of what is happening around us, happening to us, or happening in us with sicknesses and these things. And quite frankly, He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can pursue it. And yet when we fail to do this, as we do, He will give us grace if we will humble ourselves, confess our sins, and ask for grace. His mercy is more. It is. I like the way Daniel Doriani put it. He wrote, Genuine believers order their lives under the will and word of the Lord. Then, when they fail to meet the standard, they plead for grace. As we begin to wrap up, I'd like to talk about humility just a a little bit more. Just a little bit more. We can see that James was a humble man by how he refused to list his impressive credentials. Half-brother of Jesus, wow, man. Jerusalem Church Council leader, wow, man. Pastor, lead pastor of the Jerusalem Church, wow. I mean, these are some... Apostle, wow. Those are some credentials, right? But we can see that he's humble because he doesn't list any of that. And in doing that, leaving those things out, He has set an example. He actually set an example for His immediate audience, those who would read this once it got to them, and for all future audiences, including us. And here's what we must understand at this point. Humility is an important, a vitally important, I would say, a vitally important virtue, especially when we're dealing with instruction. If we are humble, we will properly hear, receive, and apply instruction. Are you hearing me? But if we lack humility, we will not properly hear, receive, and apply instruction. If we have a sense of entitlement, a sense of self-worth, a sense of pride, a sense of piety. It's all based on pride. We're not going to receive. We're not going to hear it right. We're not going to receive it. So the question for you at this point, and there will be many questions coming in the weeks to come, but the question for all of us at this point is, are we humble enough to listen to James? Are we humble enough to receive his instruction? Are we humble enough to apply it? That is the question before us. That is what I want you to ponder this week. Okay?